Welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 217. Hands aloft, please. You're the prisoners of Captain Vallow and his scurvy crew. You may be overconfident, Captain Vallow. There are 200 of the King's Marines aboard this vessel and only 20 pirates. That puts the odds slightly in my favor. For countries that wish to move goods and treasure back in the 16th and 17th centuries, wind-powered sailing ships and ocean transit were the preferred option. And pirates were a major, major problem. Pirate gangs like those headed by Edward Teach, better known as Blackbeard, the Barbarossa brothers, and Captain William Kidd plied the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, and Indian oceans, and elsewhere. The groups were a persistent menace, but they weren't merely crooks. Many operated as privateers, helping to further the interests and ambitions of sponsor nations like England and Spain. Sir Francis Drake is most known for circumnavigating the globe, but he was also a pirate of the First Order, raiding Spanish colonial settlements in what is now Mexico and the west coast of the United States on his way around the world. And he operated with the tacit support of England's Queen Elizabeth, who was interested in weakening the strength of the Spanish Navy on the high seas. All that complexity bears a striking resemblance to a modern scourge on global commerce, ransomware. Today, ransomware gangs, like the pirates of yore, swoop in on businesses and public sector agencies with little notice, holding them hostage for ransom and stealing sensitive data. Many have even adopted the symbols of piracy, including the skull and crossbones. And, as was the case back in the 17th century, sponsor nations often lurk behind these groups. First and foremost, Russia, which has given safe harbor to a number of ransomware gangs to operate and which benefits indirectly from the chaos that they sow in rival economies. That's why ransomware was very much on the agenda when Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin and President Joe Biden met this week in Geneva. Among other things, Biden was expected to push Putin on his country's practice of allowing ransomware gangs to operate with impunity from within its borders. And while it seems there was no clear agreement at the summit around cybersecurity cooperation— there is evidence that the industrialized nations in the G7 are waking up to the threat posed by these groups and are ready to cooperate. To discuss what lessons history might hold for them as they confront this 21st century form of pirating, we invited Andy Jakewith back into the Security Ledger Studios. Andy is the chief security officer at the firm Complex and an expert on cybersecurity with a background in political science and economics. In this conversation, we talk about the deep similarities that exist between the ransomware scourge of the early 21st century and the problems of piracy that faced nations back in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. We also discuss what lessons the rise and fall of piracy might have for countries interested in putting a check on ransomware groups. I'm Andy Jakewith. I'm the Chief Security Officer of Complex. Andy, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks, Paul. Always good to be here. It's always great to have you. Tell us just a little bit about you and what you do at Complex, and then we can talk about ransomware. Sure. I'm uh, So I'm Andy. Uh, I'm the Chief Security Officer at Complex, so uh, I, I do what Chief Security Officers do, which is safeguard the safeguard the uh, the ramparts uh, the boundaries of the of, of the castle and so forth um, looking for security problems trying to shut them down trying to manage the security uh, and risk profile of the company and so on so I'm a working CISO. Uh, I'm also the business unit head of the cyber 
business unit here at Complex. So uh, to, to, as they used to say on late night TV with Cy Sperling, I'm, I'm not just a client, uh, I'm also the president. It's <laughs> <laughs> not quite right. I got it a little bit reversed, actually, but you know what I mean. Close enough for radio. I think our listeners are really familiar with the ransomware problem. I mean, certainly there's been so much written about it, but I guess give us, give us if you will, the sort of 10,000 foot view of the ransomware problem, because it isn't really a new problem. It's been around for a while, but why, why is this hitting so hard and, and uh, causing so much pain right now at this point in time? I went to school. Um, I got my degree in, in uh, political science and economics, right? So I, I suppose I can, I can puff up my chest, harumph, and say I'm a trained economist. Uh, but, you know, it is nonetheless something I sort of fall back on uh, a little bit um, from time to time. And, and so, you know, when you look at, at a lot of these problems, and this isn't a new insight, right? M- many of the things that we've seen in the world of cyber harken back to economics and that there really is, there are economic incentives that are causing things to be the way that they are. And in the case of, in the case of ransomware, uh, it has to do with the financial incentives of the attackers. Now, we know that we've seen this evolution over the last uh, really about 15, 20 years of an increased professionalization of uh, of cyber attackers, right? And that includes the state-sponsored variety that we're all familiar with. So the, the Chinese uh, advanced persistent threats, uh, as they are euphemistically, euphemistically called in the Air Force, um, as uh, being on the payroll of the of the of the PRA, uh, and that was uh, something that I think we're all familiar with. But there's another variety of of attacker, and those are that are loosely um, sanctioned by nation states to essentially work on their behalf. And there is a model for this in in economics. But before I turn to that, you know, why are we here, right? What's the, what are the what are the economic pressures that we see? And and that goes back to the professionalization. We have seen the the incentives such that bad guys have figured out something quite um, important and very basic, which is that everybody is money. Um, it used to be that in the old days, you know, when you had a bank, right? The, the, the old saying, everybody knows Willie Sutton's old expression, why do you rob banks? Because it's where the money is, right? And so um, banks and uh credit card companies have accounts, right? You can drain them of money. You can steal their credit card details, right? So this this whole wave of personal information that we saw, which led to the development of the payment card industry's data security standard, PCI DSS, right? Um, which has been the bane and boon of the industry for 15 years now or whatever. That was predicated on this, on this finding a fungible currency, and that's personal data that you could turn for a profit, sell on the dark web and whatnot. The, the ransomware wrinkle is, is actually a lot simpler, is a faster route to money. And that is realizing that you don't have to be a bank to have fungible assets. All you got to do is have a PC. And if you're a company that has a fleet of PCs and servers, those are money because you can lock them up and you can extort a ransom out of them and you can dox them if they don't knuckle under to your demands, right? And so it's an incredibly efficient economic model. It's almost as efficient as the magic quadrant uh, <laughs> from a revenue as a revenue extraction device, Ooh, right? Ooh, I know. Gloves I are know. off. Gloves are off. Yeah. Pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty sick burn on there. But I think Gardner takes payment in Bitcoin now. They do. <laughs> um, but, 
but you get the idea, right? The, this is a really efficient route to money um, because it means that all you've got to do is find a way in. And the more PCs you have, the better. And the closer you are to a supply chain where you've got uh, significant constraints around delivery, where sort of timing and pressure and risk all fuse together into a big hairball that feels expensive right at the point of attack, right? That's what you look for. That is why meat packers of all industries are getting attacked. It's why law firms are getting attacked. It's why trucking companies, logistics, right? These are these are not normally on the typical radar. Government um, government agencies, government right? agencies, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, they're softer targets, mm-hmm. but they have just as many fungible assets as a lot of these other places, and a willingness to pay. And so that's why that's why we're at this place we are in, uh, with ransomware now, because it's there's a fundamental economic shift in the way the bad guys operate. They've found a new currency and they're mining it aggressively. And and part of this also is is the the enabling uh, technology of cryptocurrency as well, which has really made it very easy for them to get paid. Whereas previously, kind of pre Bitcoin, the the difficult part logistically was was getting paid, right? Getting the money into accounts that you controlled. Totally right. I, I think the the cryptocurrency is really fueled. Um, there is a vehicle. It is essentially a way to, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, launder, launder the money. Um, One of the things that you and I were talking about um, is how similar the current state of affairs is to phenomena that that you know we've seen in in history. In particular, you've got these criminal groups, cyber criminal groups, operating safely from within host countries and causing a lot of economic pain. It's very similar to kind of the great age of piracy in the you know late 17th, early 18th century, where you had these criminal groups of pirates operating often with the kind of knowing uh, cooperation of, of host governments or host countries, whether those were in the Caribbean or in the Mediterranean. Um, to talk, just kind of blow that up for us a little bit and and you're thinking about kind of why maybe maybe if there are similarities between between now and then yeah it's a great it's a great analogy and you know i've been thinking a little bit about this in terms of the labor model right it's it's there's degrees of of control that you can have over who's operating on your behalf and that ranges from let's just call it full employment as a full employee or full-time equivalent all the way through to, you know, very loose affiliations. I, I think when, in the case uh, of the, uh, of the PLA in, in China, for example, these are, you know, full-time employees, the North Koreans, these are employees of their respective governance that are governments that are acting on behalf of uh, state-defined missions, right, to steal industrial secrets and to cause trouble, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, then a little further down the line, you have you know contractors, and and certainly in in warfare, um, you see this uh, all over the place, ranging from the Revolutionary War with the Hessians, uh, contracted by the British uh, against the the U.S. More recently, you've got uh, company, private companies like Blackwater that are essentially serving as contractors on behalf of a sovereign, you know, basically subcontracted out by a military operation. In the case of the uh, pirates, in the um, you know these are these are more lawless. They're not affiliated with the government. There is a a, a gradation between uh, often called privateers. Um, there's a kind of a Caribbean variant of it, buccaneers, and the French version corsairs. Right, 
but um, but privateers is really closer to the to the um, to the mark here, and privateer is is effectively a a pirate that's operating under constraints. Their job is to is to they're mission oriented. Uh, they carry a letter of mark on behalf of the of the government they're operating for, um, but they're they're not completely affiliated with it, and so the the government has uh, the ability to disavow. So, you know, in this in the um, 16th and 17th centuries, you had folks like Sir Francis Drake, who you know many of us think of as an explorer, right? He sailed around the world, um, but he of course was also a essentially a, a for hire, you know, a, a semi-contracted pirate that whose job was to sink Spanish ships and to plunder their gold and everything else. And that's pretty close to what you have here. You have, you have uh, ransomware operators, most of whom, you know, the big ones seem to be headquartered out of the, out of Russia uh, and are operating with, if not the, the sanction of, then certainly without any punishment um, from the Russian government. And that's an analogy I think here that fits. And so, you know, the challenge that the that the Biden administration is going to have is how you navigate this this um, international thicket where there is some plausible deniability, and and Putin can throw up his hands and say, "Well, you know, it wasn't me; mm-hmm. um, it was my chef." You know, <laughs> yeah, and and in fact, you can look, you know, and and security researchers have kind of look at look in the code of some of these ransomware packages and see that they are actually programmed to, you know, if you are running, you know, a Russian language package on your Windows system uh, or have a Russian keyboard configuration, then the ransomware will not execute on your system. Um, and if you don't, uh, then it will. And so, you know, it's pretty clear that this isn't merely a kind of loose, fuzzy type of don't don't attack Russian companies or Russian interests. It's it's actually in the code. Um, yep. Breaking and, new, breaking and, news: Amazon has sold out all of its Cyrillic keyboards for the next few days. <laughs> <laughs> defense, there's defense in depth exactly. for you. Just plug it into a USB and just let it sit there. Um, um, and you know, uh, you're right. Most of these groups do operate out of Russia, but as you yourself said, th- th- there are versions of them in North Korea. There are versions of them in you know Iran and the Middle East. There are versions of them in, you know, uh, South America, Brazil, among other places. So this is not limited to Russia and the former Soviet bloc countries, but but that seems to be where most of them are coming from. Um, I was interested because like you, I also did some background reading on piracy. I mean, it seems when you start looking at it that way, the similarities kind of crop up. Also, you know, you read that with with the sort of eight, you know, 17th and 18th century pirates, um, there was also a lot of economic dislocation that kind of pushed people towards piracy, you know, young men kind of looking for economic opportunity and and agency, you know, not wanting to become indentured servants. Um, and, and piracy was kind of a way out. I, I guess you might see similar kind of factors at work in some of these, you know, former Soviet economies where a lot of engineering talent, maybe not a lot of economic opportunity. I think so. I, I think there is there is a lot of economic opportunity, particularly um, where where you know Russia economically is is a, a small shell of what it used to be uh, under the Soviet uh, under the Soviet era. I think what's also you know very interesting about about this is that is that it's so asymmetric. The um, some of these ransomware gangs have the opportunity to do a lot of damage and could conceivably you know over the next couple of years transfer measurable um, measurable amounts of GDP from industrialized countries um, to uh, you know to Russia or their or similar states that are sponsoring these kinds of things 
uh, you know, the, the, again, the, the, the sort of the piracy privateer angle is instructive. Uh, you know, Drake, when, when he sailed into the, into the port of Cadiz and basically sunk uh, the, the prize of the Spanish fleet, um, it, it essentially crippled the, the, the Spaniards' ability to do what they really wanted to do, which is to, to, uh, to you know, sail into the English Channel and, and invade. Um, that was, you know, one of, the, one of the, the, the Grand Armada and so forth was, was not so grand because Drake sunk, Drake sunk the best of it. Um, and this is, a, you know, that even those relatively um, seemingly insignificant but but at the time, of course, quite significant events. The the have asymmetric effects on the ability of a of a sovereign nation to engage and to and to conduct itself and to determine its own destiny. And so the thing that I worry a little bit about here is is not so much whether we're going to see a continuation of ransomware, but how bad it's going to be. Uh, I, I I wonder whether we're going to talk about percentage points of GDP uh, transfer of wealth, for example. Um, or, or, the, or maybe not, but but it's certainly going to be significant. I mean, right now, uh, I'm sure there are a number of places you can quantify the amount of money that's been paid out in ransoms, but it's it's got to be in the, you know, approaching a billion dollars would be my guess. Yeah, which is a drop in the bucket in a, in a $22 trillion economy. On the other hand, as you mentioned, these ransomware groups are also stealing data ostensibly to hold it for ransom. But of course, there's no guarantee that that data isn't also being shared with their benefactors or, or the uh, the countries uh, that are basically giving them free reign to operate on a kind of uh, you know um, as needed basis. Yes, I think and, that's right. The, right. The, the, some of that's very hard to quantify, of course, but but um, yeah, no yes, reason to th- no reason to think that wouldn't be part of part of the uh, the gentleman's arrangement, as it were. Yep, part of the plan. Part of the plan. You know, we've seen just in the last few weeks, right? Uh, obviously, the Colonial Pipeline, JBS, huge meatpacking uh, operation. What is what is the private sector missed on this, and um, what can what can be done to stop that? As you said, that huge um, transfer of wealth and intellectual property that uh, that's going to happen if we don't if we don't get a handle on it. I think the thing that the private sector um, hasn't done a great job at is pattern spotting on some of the tactics and techniques that the actors are using and and taking better steps to try and, and arrest some of these. Um, sorry, I don't mean from a law enforcement standpoint. I mean, arrest isn't stop, right? So, you know, if, if you if you look at the playbook for ransomware, and I think we've, we've talked about this in a couple of contexts outside of this podcast, um, the... the the, the attacker playbook is actually pretty simple. It's, it's get in, spread, and then profit. And so, you know, find an external weakness. It could be an external RDP vulnerability, for example, or it could be uh, an unpatched system on the outside. It could be an open source library that's, that's vulnerable, or it could be a phishing attack, right? Any of these are vectors in. Uh, once you get in, the post-exploitation step is almost always to escalate privileges and forge credentials so that you can take over what is inevitably a Windows domain on the inside that allows you to essentially invade the central nervous system of the company, spread the ransomware where you like, and then detonate it and and, and get to the next step, which is to extort and profit. And so that post-exploitation step around privilege escalation and credential forgery is really the common element in the playbook in all of these. And so from a pattern spotting standpoint, what defenders really need to be doing is looking at at those steps in particular, how to detect it, uh, how to shut it down, and then ultimately um, how to to 
compartmentalized such that attackers aren't able to detonate some of these payloads, you know, far and wide across their entire enterprise. That takes some doing, but but certainly having some of the key detective capabilities allows you to react a lot faster, which means something that could be um, extremely expensive because it becomes something now, frankly, a little bit more manageable. Um, if we extend the pirate or Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> analogy, um, are there lessons to be learned from how the world's economies 300 years ago got a, a grip on the piracy problem and how we might address ransomware today? I, 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 my, my recollection is that um, larger navies had a good, good role to play in getting a grip on piracy, but also cooperation, also a, a, a measure of international cooperation. Yeah, I, I think the, the back and forth, um, I think, eventually exhausted many of the participants, many of the the, the, uh, the state actors um, got exhausted by all this. And many of the these privateers um, were, were eventually either absorbed or basically put out of business by sovereign nations, uh, navies. And that may be where this goes, right, where ultimately uh, there is... Uh, strike back capability developed um, that causes inflicts uh, symmetric pain uh, on adversaries, and of course, it doesn't necessarily need to be cybercrime. It could be something like, "Hey, that's a that's a great uh, great swift network you got there. It'd be really a shame if we had to disconnect <laughs> you from it." Right? Um, yeah, <laughs> things like that. You know, just um, you got to work on your monster voice there, Andy. I know. Yeah, I know. I'm not so good at <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was uh, you know Meyer Lansky by way of Yale Yale University. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't doesn't work out that well. Um. <laughs> so, with that in mind, is there anything that might be uh, accomplished in President Biden's um, meeting with um, uh, Russia's Prime Minister uh, Vladimir Putin this week, uh, where they will be talking about what to do about this uh, ransomware problem? And I think President. Uh, Biden will be urging Prime Minister Putin to crack down on ransomware groups that are operating from within Russia. I don't know if much is going to get accomplished. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of the old uh, the old farmer analogy. You know, why did the why did the farmer hit the mule uh, on the rear end with a two by four? And the answer is to get its attention. <laughs> I think that's really what this is going to be uh, an attention getting mm-hmm. kind of summit um, mm-hmm. with with probably some thinly veiled warnings and caveats. Um, I have no inside knowledge of this, of course. Um, and I think that's going to be the substance of it. The um, practically speaking, what matters from here is is how engaged DHS and, and the CISA is with uh, American and other nations, private industries. Uh, so that we can all get a better grip on this and, and be better defended. And certainly, you know, private um, private organizations, security firms, um, you know, such as the one that, that I work for, for example, you know, we think we've got a role to play in helping companies defend themselves too. It's always a pleasure talking to you and uh, we'll have you back on again soon. This is good. This is good fun, Paul. I really appreciate you having me on today. Andy Jakewith is the chief security officer at the firm Complex. He was here to talk with us about ransomware and piracy.
Arg.